Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seed on earth. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Easter, we heard of an encounter at the borrowed tomb of Jesus in this garden. His close friend and you know one of the women who had supported his ministry, the Gospels tell us, uh, whose life had been changed by Jesus, ha has come early in the morning. And um, some of the accounts say she, she was there with others, but she's come to mourn, uh, to go through these ceremonies of grief, these, these experiences that we use to mark uh, pivotal moments in our life and, and, and give vent to our emotions and, and sort of categorize where we are and, and place us in the world. And she goes, and we don't know all that she's expecting, but you can imagine just the, the weight, the cloud over her, the heaviness of, of Jesus' death. And at first, she's absolutely shocked to find that Jesus is absent from the tomb. You know, Jesus is not where uh, he is expected to be, not where he's supposed to be. And then, later in the story, she's shocked by finding out that he is there, that he's, he's present. And um, in between those two, being shocked that he's absent and then being shocked by his presence, she mistakes him for the gardener, which we spoke about on Easter Sunday. And, and I think... You know, it's a microcosm, but many of us in our life experience can relate to those two, uh, you know, conditions of, of, of awareness of God. Many of you in your life, you know, would say you've been shocked or surprised by God's absence. God wasn't where you expected God to be. And that can be really difficult. That can be really painful. That's something we have to wrestle with. Many of us have also been uh, shocked by God's presence. God shows up in ways that we were not expecting and reorients our entire understanding of God, understanding of ourselves, understanding of the world. But also for many of us in between, God is often there, but not in a way that we immediately recognize. It takes a little while. It takes maybe even revel uh, revelation. But of course, the other wild thing about Mary's encounter with Jesus on Easter morning and her mistaking him for the gardener is he is the gardener. God is a gardener. From Genesis to Revelation, God is planting gardens. It's something that is a passion of his. It is a way he intends to show us how his redemption works in the world. 
And so when Jesus comes to explain the kingdom of God, that's how the, the gospel of Mark first you know, gives us a picture of what Jesus has come to do, that he, he shows up and says, repent, reorient your entire life for the kingdom is at hand. And then the rest of the gospel, Jesus is, is teaching us what the kingdom of God is and then demonstrating what the kingdom of God is. And when Jesus comes to explain what the kingdom of God is, he keeps circling back to this planting and growing metaphor. The kingdom of God is like a seed put in the ground that grows up to become something much more than it first seemed to be. Wonderful. That's great. That sounds so easy. When we hear that, most of us have no problem with it whatsoever. We can grasp the concept. We have obvious places in the natural world to see that very principle in action. We you kind of know the basics of how trees and plants grow. And, and, and we know not even that. Like metaphorically, we get it. We, we know from our lives how things can get planted in us and grow into something much bigger. This isn't something that we have to, to dig too deep to, to understand. Recently, I, I watched this uh, two-part HBO documentary uh, that they made on Tiger Woods, and uh, I'm a huge fan of Tiger as a golfer. He has done some things on the golf course that are absolutely mind-blowing, and then he's done them over and over and over and over again in the most uh, wild circumstances. And uh, you have to forgive me, I don't do golf illustrations that much, but here we go. Um, and I also pull for him you know, as a person. And uh, I think he's absolutely fascinating. I think it's wild how much he's transcended a sport that many people find tremendously boring to watch. My, my kids roll their eyes so hard when they come in and, and see golf on the television. Many of you are rolling your eyes now, but um, I, I'm pulling for this guy to recover from this car accident he's just been in. And there's a couple of issues I kind of had with the, the storytelling in the documentary. I don't know who, who's, who's seen it and, and, and no, no pressure if you haven't. But um, for instance, one of the things is they, they have one of his high school girlfriends who hasn't seen him in 20 years um, sort of giving comments on who he is as a person and his character. And, and uh, you know, I, I certainly would not want that to be. I can't think of many of us who would want our high school boyfriend or girlfriend giving comments on, on who we are as a person having not seen us in 20 years. And I, obviously, Tiger is by no means a, a perfect person. None of us are. I'm not holding him up as, a, as an example in, in that way. But um, he's also been under this glaring light of, of public scrutiny since he was a teenager. And uh, because we know so much about his life, we have the opportunity to do something um, you know, that happens when you have a, a person's story laid out in, in front of you. And the documentary does this. Um, is you get to see when the seeds are planted and then what they grow into. And I thought that was really compelling as I, as I watched this two-part story of Tiger's life. You could see the seeds of his father's love early on in his life and then his father's relentless belief in him. And, you know, there's problems, you know, that, that come up in the story, but at the heart is this, this man, Earl, Tiger's dad, who just loves him and believes in him and thinks his son is going Going to do something special and spectacular and he's absolutely relentless in his commitment to that and you see these clips of, of tiger when he's two years old hit, hitting golf balls in the garage and earl's just like i just knew he was you know what he was going to be he had this sort of sense in his heart and they had this bond through the game that grows throughout their entire life and um and then but also in the same relationship, you see the seeds of some of the things Tiger is going to struggle with later in his life as well. He gets this relentless belief uh, you know, from Earl. He also gets some of the seeds of, of the struggles he'll have later in life. And, and so 
I, I, I think about that, the power of belief and the power of, of practice, the power of encouragement, the, but then also the power and, the, and, the, and, and how you can have seeds of selfishness or seeds of betrayal or seeds of neglect. I think about this as a father. I also just think about this as a human being, a friend, a person in the world. And so some of the basic principles of Jesus's parable are right there on, on, this, on the surface for us. Things that might not seem really significant in the moment become huge later in our life. A seed can grow into things that are full of life and have profound, large impact on us. But Jesus is saying this is the comparison to the kingdom of God. What, why, why is Jesus giving us this you know, seemingly simple truth about the kingdom of God and then, and then doubling down on it? There's two parables right here about the kingdom being like, like, like seeds. Next week, we're going to have another parable called the parable of the sower that, that deals with the same type of reality. So why is Jesus comparing the kingdom of God like a seed sown in the ground? And, and I think to get at the answer to that, we need to spend just a moment considering why Jesus speaks in parables in the first place. So often you'll, you'll hear um, you know, someone just coming into uh, connection with Jesus' life, or even sometimes a longtime examiner of Jesus' life, give an answer to why Jesus speaks in parables that I, I think is not quite sufficient enough. They'll say, you know, Jesus was a masterful teacher, and all great teachers know um, that you help people learn through simple comparison. So you take something someone doesn't understand, and you lay it aside, something that they do understand, and, and then people can make the leap. But that just doesn't really work for the parables. Uh, First off, because many of them are not super simple and easy to understand. And Jesus is trying to just like, let me draw this agricultural metaphor out. And then all of a sudden, um, the, the, the realities of the kingdom will be clear. That does not seem to happen. Um, and Jesus seems to know this. He, he, he seems to, to, to say he's speaking in parables, at least in some sense, so that people won't realize what he's intending, won't realize what he's meaning, at least not right away. We have examples where Jesus tells a parable and then immediately has to go away separately and explain things in a, in a more plain way to his disciples. And then still, even then, still, they still don't get it. So what then? Are we to think Jesus is being cruel because he's concealing his meaning? He's making it hard for people to understand his teaching by giving these va veiled parables? Are, are these parables basically just coded judgment? And he's like, you're going to hear and you're not going to understand? To really answer that, we, we do need to do a, a, a little digging, but at least part of the answer seems to you know, center around being able to say something to someone or to a group of people that is so confronting, something that they need to hear, but when they receive it, it needs to come to them like it dawned on them. <laughs> The, to say something that is so controversial, so in your face, um, but it's something that you can carry away and the meaning is like a slow release capsule as opposed to feeling attacked with this information. It's something you can carry away and it can dawn on you and, and, and come to you. Centuries before in Israel's history, we have an example of this. Uh, it shows the power of how a parable can work. And many of you may be f familiar with this story, but if you're not, I'll give you just the, the basic setup. So David was king of Israel and we know know, you know, the, the famous failing in, D in David's life where he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then in order to cover it up, he had her husband, husband Uriah murdered. And 
David is going along and seemingly the story is that he's gotten away with this. And, and um, God sends the prophet Nathan uh, to come and confront David. But Nathan's in a tricky spot. He's got to go and confront the man who is the king, who obviously has the authority to ki- commit murder and cover it up. If he doesn't like what you're saying, you're, you're, you're in a dangerous place. And so Nathan tells David a story. He tells him a story about a poor man who had one lamb, who loved this lamb. His children treated the lamb like a pet and a a rich man nearby decides to throw a, a party and he comes and he takes the, the poor man's one lamb and, he, and, he, and he, he steals it and he slaughters it for his party. And David is hearing this story and he becomes angry. He becomes incensed as he's hearing uh, you know, Nathan's story. And finally, Nathan turns the story and shows David. He says, you are the man. And by doing this in a parable, it dawns on David so that he directs his anger not at the messenger but at his own heart. He realizes the thing to be frustrated with is his own sin. And that's what Jesus seems to be doing here. At least part of the reason he's communicating in in parables is he has some incendiary things to say, some shocking things to say, some confronting things to say. I I think they're life-giving things. I think they're they're world-changing, kingdom-bringing, powerful things. But but on, on first hearing, if he was just to come out with the blunt truth, it seems like many in his audience, and because there's a wide audience, right, some of the people are going to be comforted by what he says. Some of them are going to be confronted by what he says. And he's speaking to this wide group. And so he gives them these stories that they can carry away where the meaning can dawn on them later. Sometimes they get it right away, right? We see the Pharisees being tremendously offended and and all sorts of, uh, of reactions. But Jesus, one of the wild parts of the accounts of his life is that he's navigating these three years of public ministry in a way where he has to avoid um, being crowned king too early, right? Some after, after some of his miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, when it was like, the, the power this man has, we need to harness it, we need to use it, we, we need this at our disposal, and they want to make Jesus king, and he has to avoid that happening, or, or, or happening too soon in the wrong way, right? That's the part of the essence of the temptation in the wilderness, is the enemy putting these things that Jesus was eventually going to uh, rightfully stand step into in the Father's plan to get them in a shortcut way. So Jesus has to avoid, in his three-year public ministry, being crowned too soon, but also being killed too soon. There's times where they're so upset with him and the things that he's saying that they, they try to arrest him, and it'll say like a wild thing in the text, and like Jesus slipped away from them and wasn't, wasn't there a- a- anymore. He rarely uses his miraculous powers to protect himself, but a few times he slips out of people's grasp. Sometimes they want to make Jesus king. Sometimes they want to kill him. And so Jesus subverts the power of his day and our day by teaching in parables. Stories, like I said, that can stay with us, that can dawn on us, that can comfort us, but can also confront us. And if you drag him into court and demand he testify, what did you say out on the plane? Uh, That was a story about seeds. Oh, that was a story about a lost boy. That was a story about a lost sheep. That was a story about some people trying to keep their, their lamps burning, you know, while they waited for a wedding feast. Also, the parables seem to give people an opportunity to opt in or to opt out, you know, to, to follow up with Jesus with questions and relationship or to go their own way. Many hear and they walk away offended or confused and that's it. Others follow up and ask questions and they want to seek more. And for those people, the parables are, are sort of like a door. They're, they're a threshold that you can pass over into more. 
So we're going to look at the parables um, of, of Jesus, the parables of the kingdom uh, over, over the weeks to come here in Eastertide. It says that Jesus in the 40 days after his resurrection spent time with his friends and disciples and he unpacked for them, he unveiled for them, he taught them about the kingdom of God. And so I think a lot of what he was doing, we have an example of this we're going to look at in just a minute, it was going back through things he had already said to them and showing them the reality of those, those parables in light of the parable that was his life his own life, death, and resurrection. So we've selected as the parables we're going to go through some of the greatest hits. Uh, we might get some B-sides and some of the more obscure ones in the summer, but um, I hope these will be like a door for us. Uh, it, it, I, some of you may, may know this, others you m- might not. I'm, I'm getting to uh, you know, know more, more and more of you, and, and it's been such a wild, wild year in, in the church knowing you know, where we're all at. But I studied theater in college. That's the point of that rambling explanation. And um, in the early 90s, there was a set of, of one-act plays that was published called It's All in the Timing. And uh, the first of these one-act plays was called uh, Sure Thing. And and the premise is this. A a man and a woman meet in a cafe, and they start a conversation. And a bell rings uh, each time one of them says something that would basically end the encounter in a negative way. So the play goes on, and the bell keeps ringing. And whatever they said right before the bell rings, then they change it, and and they go on. So it's basically like the man walks up, and the woman's sitting there. He says, is this seat taken? She says, yes. Then the bell rings. And then she says... Uh, no, but I'm waiting for someone in, in just a moment, and the bell rings again. And they, and they basically keep ringing the bell until the person says something the other person is, is okay with. And, and then eventually, um, they, they keep changing their lines until by the end, they have fallen in love. And so it's sort of kind of like a parable about language and about relationships and about what it takes to to actually get you know get together find you know find that heart connection with someone and the play can be interpreted in multiple ways like 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 the parables and and, and this this play makes me think about the way Jesus is, uses parables he he's showing the power of words to repel us uh, or or to draw us in you know, the, the, their doorways it's their invitations do i want to know more do i want to explore more or am i shutting the door and going on my own way, keeping all my expectations and, and, how, and, and sort of pre-made decisions. Also the importance of timing, right? It's all in the timing. Jesus is having to avoid being killed or being crowned too early. He has to go through the process, go through the journey. And parables have this power. They stand as a door, as a fork in the road, as, as a confrontation, but a confrontation that's wearing a familiar cloak, uh, as, a, as a protection, as a, as a provocation. It's like you, you first you don't recognize them, and then all of a sudden, in a blink, you do. This is Mary in the garden encountering the resurrected Jesus. There's this famous story that I, I mentioned we would, we would hit, and uh, it's these two disciples of Jesus, and they're leaving town after the crucifixion. It's all over. The movement is done. Their leader has been crucified, captured by Rome, all the uh, conspiracy and it's over. The story is often called the road to Emmaus. You can read it in Luke 24. And they're leaving. They're, they're sort of like hanging their heads, slumping their shoulders, utter defeat. And um, Jesus shows up and he, he walks with them and they don't recognize him at first. It's another like Jesus is the parable. And he's sort of like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And um, they're like, have you not been around Jerusalem? Do you don't know anything that's going on? And he goes back through and it says that he, he begins to tell them the story and, and the story of the Hebrew scriptures. He begins to tell them the whole story in a new light. 
He weaves these threads together, and, and, and um, we don't know how they're experiencing it until, until later in the story when it's recapped. But when they finally, he's going to go on, and they compel him to stay with him. And when they finally break bread and share wine in the meal, he's recognized to them. And it's like as soon as they recognize him, he pulls this like uh, trick, and, he, and, he, and he's gone. And then they speak to one another, and they say, did our hearts not burn? Did our hearts not burn when he was sharing with us? As the puzzle pieces were coming together, it's like we were, it was slowly dawning on us that this life-changing reality was right before us, that this new way of being a human being was being unveiled to us. Did our hearts not burn as the threads were knit together and we began to see the picture coming through? Parables had this power. This is a commercial for the rest of this series. Parables have this power. They are a door, a fork in the road, a confrontation wearing a familiar cloak, a protection, a provocation, a secret message, an invitation. So we're starting seemingly easy. What could be so provocative and dangerous about these simple seed stories? Well, let's just see for a moment as, as, we, as we wrap up. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Simple enough details, the man scatters the seed, and the seed grows, but he doesn't know how it grows. He has a part to play, uh, but the seed doesn't grow by his power. It, it, it contains the life in and of itself. The kingdom is like something that has the life in it, and then it breaks out and grows up and produces fruit in the world. It produces life, but it produces that life in stages. It's not like blinking. It's all there in, in one moment. And then he has a, a participation in the, uh, the sowing of the seed, but he also has a participation in the harvest. So Jesus' imagery here basically on the surface seems completely innocent. But he, if, if we listen carefully, he is confronting many of his hearers' hopes and dreams for the future and their imagined role in it. If you were to fill in the, the, the blank on this sentence, the kingdom of God is, to many of Jesus' hearers, for them it would have been, Rome is out of here. The kingdom of God is back when we re-inherit the promises God made to Abraham for us and our nation. Israel's back in power. Our group is on top. Rome is out. And that wasn't going to happen. They knew right from the Hasmonean revolt and the Hasmonean dynasty, that wasn't going to happen unless someone came and did it. It would be really nice if someone came and did that who had miraculous power, who could feed people, who who could stop storms, right? Someone who who they could depend on to, to win for them. Some direct power influence would be needed. We need God to make our thing happen. And Jesus says, ah, it's actually going to be more like a seed that grows while you sleep. So as innocent as that is, it's also deeply confronting to their vision of the world. And when it shows up, who gets the credit? Night and day, whether he sleeps or or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Really interesting. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts. The word gets up is translated the exact word for resurrection. 
The kingdom of God is like a seed sown in the ground that dies and then resurrects. And that is how it changes the world. Not through this direct military overpowering might, but through this strange, mysterious, resurrecting, dying weakness, raising in new life. He's, he's saying to them in a way they, that can dawn on them over time that the future you are hoping for is just a pale sliver of what is actually coming. And it's not going to be accomplished by the power you imagine. It's not going to be comp- accomplished by a power that you can lay your hands on and manipulate and get all the credit and glory for yourself. It's going to be accomplished by this counterintuitive, inverse display of power through weakness, going in the ground, and rising back up. Say it one other way. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Those who heard this, their ears would have been burning. This is Isaiah 40 language. Who is like our God? To whom shall we compare him? And and all of a sudden they're like, okay, what is he saying here? What is he trying to reveal to us? Everything, everything is, is coming through this. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. How has God been bringing the kingdom all the way back in Genesis 12, calling this man Abraham, who was past the age that he could be used to to birth a family, and through all of his failures and his his lying and, and his hiding, and then Jacob and all of his lying and cheating and family drama, and then Moses, you know, for, for all, all of him sensing his calling and then going about it in his own strength and then being re- renewed by God and, and sent back as this you know participation and deliverance, but then still losing his temper, and, and we see Moses as a real person with all. All of his, 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 his strength and his weakness, his glory and his failings displayed. David, same thing, right? We just covered the adultery. This nation, Israel, that's supposed to be a part of God's covenant of repair in the world, but it's constantly failing at its own vocation. It's broken. It's split apart. And yet the seed keeps growing. Eventually, this peasant rabbi shows up in the corner of the empire, born in the middle of of petty, of petty scandal in the middle of the Roman census, reminding us who's really in power. And his untrained followers, these fishermen, these tax collectors, they're barely a, a blip on the historical radar. And yet, 300 years later, the emperor of Rome is speaking the name of Jesus and calling out in faith. What is it that shook the world? What is it that turned it upside down that was sown like a seed and then grew up into something unimaginable, something that brought life and healing and shade and joyful participation and rest and our true destiny as human beings, men and women, sons and daughters of God? The seed of the kingdom sown in the ground like a mustard seed. If you were with us for Good Friday, the last words of the service, the benediction. Christ is is the kingdom of heaven, sown like a mustard seed in the garden of the virgin's womb. He grew up into the tree of the cross whose branches stretch across the world. The seed. Christ is the kingdom of heaven, sown like a mustard seed in the garden of the virgin's womb. He grew up into the tree of the cross whose branches stretch across the world. You've tripped over the sidewalk in New York City, right? 
Often you'll look down after that moment. Maybe you've said Jesus' name by accident right after that happens, and, and it probably, he probably forgives you for that. Um, but often you look down, and what you find is that a tree root has pushed the concrete up. Now, it's all in the timing, right? If you were to drop a seed on that concrete, and then that seed was to be stepped on, the seed's life would be over, nothing, nothing would happen. But that seed can find a way to get into the ground and to go into the ground and die. Its strength is incredible. It grows up and changes the landscape. It grows up and changes the hardness of that ground. It grows up and changes the world. If you plant it, if it dies, it grows up and breaks through. That is true as Jesus brings the kingdom to the world. And I want to tell you, it is true for our lives as well. These seed parables are many things. I I think they're at least a celebration of small beginnings. I think they're an announcement that God grows things through death and resurrection. It's it's a a refrain. It's It's a hint towards the Easter message. It's going to be expounded later. It's also an exalted place for weakness in the kingdom of God. I want to say just a word or two about each of those. And then we'll pray and go to the table together. First, a celebration of small beginnings. Many of us are are beginning our lives in, in, in some kind of new way, right? We sense that the, the pandemic is beginning to change. We're still, we're still in it, but as the vaccine uh, is becoming more available and, 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 and we can see, hey, th- th- a time is coming where we can begin to get back to what was you know, our lives before you know, m- March of last year. And I want you to think about what you're going to begin. And I want you to think about what you're going to put, put back in place or what things you're going to, going to leave out. And, and I, I think this parable, and maybe it's the most surface level meaning, but I think it's still important, is that, that um, in the kingdom of God, there's a place for the celebration of small beginnings, uh, things that look insignificant on the surface, this small little prayer practice in the morning, this little act of generosity over here, this taking the risk to invite a friend to Alpha, this you know get, getting involved in, in something you know like a pray march act, you know, moment in our city where we're standing up in love for our neighbors. All, all sorts of, of little acts, you know, little acts strung throughout our lives, throughout our days, these small beginnings, right? And we know this, right? We know this from, from history. When, when you study the stories of World War II, and uh, you know when when Germany had, had had conquered and overrun Europe, and you have you know Corrie Ten Boom or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or these ordinary citizens in France, and, and they're banding together, they're keeping people hidden, they're getting food, these acts of generosity, these acts of love, these quiet acts of resistance. When there's absolutely, basically, militarily, seemingly no hope, resistance seems absolutely futile. But we know that it was not. Actually, these were the little seeds of the future liberation and and, and something new was coming. Something was going to break in that was going to change the perspective of all these little seeds of resistance along the way. These seed parables are a celebration of those those small beginnings, those out-of-the-way, seemingly insignificant moments of faith and love and generosity and mercy. Nobody sees that you were the first to forgive and the first to go back and apologize, but God sees that, and you don't know the ripples of that forgiveness in the world. Nobody sees that little moment of encouragement that you went out of your way to share and the way it lights that person's heart up and gives them a perspective of a new possibility in their world. Think about that. The power of, of our lives on one another. Celebration of small beginnings. And then the announcement that God grows things by death and resurrection. Easter, 
is our every week message. It's our everyday hope. It means that in Christ, the best is yet to come. But we have to stop fighting and surrender to the love of God. And I don't just mean conflict amongst ourselves. I mean internal conflict where we're still holding on to being our own God. There is so much misery living the Christian life without surrender. And there is so much freedom and joy when we finally release ourselves to the love of God. And we say, okay, let's go your way. Your will be done. Right? We see that with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What breaks through, through in the world from that surrender? The little seed of Jesus' surrender in the Garden of Gethsemane stretches across the world in redemption. You have no idea the scope of life that can flow out of small moments of surrender in your life. And this isn't just something we do once and for all. It's something we do on a regular daily basis, but it does get easier. Easier. It does get more beautiful. It, 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 it becomes our actual life, a life of surrendering to love. And the last thing I'll mention is this exalted place for weakness. We love the strength. We love, we might, we love Jesus flipping over the tables more than we love Jesus trembling, you know, sweating drops of blood in the garden, wondering if he can even possibly go on. And yet, over and over again, God is exalting the place of weakness as the way his kingdom comes in this broken world. We need something that comes around through the back door, counterintuitive, not the way we would expect, like a parable. I love how Philip Yancey says this. He says, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and vicious heroes. We can relate to that. Much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world, the poor and meek, the persecuted, and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, the prodigal, not the responsible son, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, Lazarus, not the, the rich man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it her glory to gather together the outcasts. So here are my questions to you as we close, listening to this first simple few parables of Jesus about seeds. What small things is God asking you to begin in faith in this moment in your life? I think this parable is an invitation to not despise those small starts, to not despise those beginning moments. As we're slowly rebeginning, rebuilding our lives after this pandemic, what will your life look like? What is God calling you to begin in faith? What ways are you invited today to hear the Easter message of death and resurrection? To have it dawn on you that Jesus is here looking at you saying, my beloved son or daughter, and running to embrace us. What is God the gardener growing in your life right now? Let's not make that rhetorical. Just take a moment and ask in your heart in prayer, what is God the gardener growing in your life right now? And lastly, we want nothing to do with weakness. 
We probably need a parable to even really consider it. We need a hidden message. But I wonder how God might be inviting you to know that it's okay not to be strong. It's okay to admit your limitations. It's okay to say, I can't do this. It's okay to say, I can't carry this. It's okay to say, I need help. Jesus is with us in that, shaking in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross, trembling, sweating drops of blood, saying, I need help. The kingdom of God is like a seed sown in the ground that grows up and gives life, gives shade to many. It is like a seed that has the life in it that breaks open and grows. That's my prayer for us, that the seed of the kingdom would break open and grow in our lives, in our community, in our city. Let's hear Jesus speaking to us today. Heavenly Father, will you minister to your church? Will you sow the seeds of your kingdom in our hearts? Would you water? Would you let them, would you let them break up and grow into life and fruit and shade? Would you help us, God, to live in a surrender to your love? Would you help us to admit our weakness and limitation and run to you? Minister to us right now by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.